Hi, everybody. Welcome back to our discussion on James Dashick's Clearing the Plains. This episode is on Chapter 4, Despair and Death During the Fur Trade Wars, 1783 to 1821. Pretty important. Okay, so with that said, let's dive right in. As the book says, this chapter is a description of changes in indigenous societies of the plains, Hudson Bay, and the northwest boreal forest region during uh, the time known as the fur trade wars. Fur trade wars, a protracted and escalating struggle among competing fur trade enterprises mainly the HBC, the Hudson's Bay Company, and the Northwest Company that spanned the period from 1780 to 1820. During this period, world historic events like the uh, American Revolution, the French Revolution, the whole Napoleonic era in Europe that was happening, uh, the Haitian Revolution, um, all these things, the War of 1812... You can see these events as kind of the out the fallout from the Seven Years' War that we talked about in the last chapter. Um, you said uh, England or Britain needed to recoup its losses from the Seven Years' War, impose taxes on its American colonies that directly influenced the events leading up to the American Revolution. Same in France, death from the Seven Years' War influenced events leading up to the French Revolution, uh, given us uh, Napoleon changing the whole uh, map of Europe, and the world as we know it now. Uh, War of 1812 in Canada, The uh, anyone in the street would probably say, oh yeah, that's the war where Canadians uh, marched down to Washington and burnt down the White House. So uh, it's not the only thing you need to know about the War of 1812, but... Uh, that's uh, that's the one we're talking about. Okay, now that we're uh, situated in uh, world history, um, okay, what is this chapter about? So, to secure trade, uh, Montreal-based Canadian traders relied on alcohol, violence, murder, and the slave traffic of indigenous women. That's all things that are happening here local indigenous populations, turned on the traders as game depletion and environmental degradation threatened the continued viability of their communities. Organized indigenous resistance failed due to a kaleidoscope, uh, just a hurricane of environmental and economic calamities, both natural and directly brought on by the fur trade. On the plains, bison remained plentiful, and all groups currently on the plains were now completely reliant on the horse for hunting and transportation, and uh, that in that greatly influences the the bison hunt, as you can imagine. Uh, bison was being hunted as a commodity, a food commodity. I think uh, we talked about this in chapter three already. 
uh, bison was being hunted in mass numbers, processed into pemmican, uh, nutritious and highly storable uh, and transportable foodstuff, uh, shipped out to the forest where the trappers are, and that's what they're. This is what's being traded at the trading posts. And as far as the uh, the health the health concerns go, in the 1780s, right at the beginning of this time frame, we have again massive smallpox epidemics. We mentioned the previous chapter. Smallpox is not a, as great a concern among Europeans. There, it's more of a childhood disease now. Like we think of chickenpox, it takes a number of generations of exposure to build up the herd immunity that we hear about so much these days. It's not just a one and done kind of thing. It takes generations, multiple waves uh, for this kind of, uh, for a very virulent and severe uh, type of airborne pathogen like smallpox and uh, some other pandemics we might know about to uh, to become uh, less of a concern. Um, so the indigenous populations, they don't have this. They've had several ways of smallpox already, but these are wiping out big communities. Uh, it's not leaving enough people alive, basically, for... Um, for immunity to develop. Uh, every time it comes through your community, say the last the last wave hit like 40 years ago in your community, everyone who had smallpox is dead. You don't get that, like, uh, you don't have that uh, built-up uh, immunity and herd immunity. So it's kind of, it's like that virgin soil epidemic, like, all over again every time this happens. So the 1780s smallpox epidemics, they completely wipe out several people groups in Western Canada, the Basquia, Peg, Pegomama, and Kowanito Cree cease to exist. They're gone. This extinction or weakening of indigenous communities results in a territorial realignment. Groups that weather the outbreak better than others move in and take over the territory of the weakened or wiped out communities. The survivors of the communities affected by smallpox, the weakened or wiped out communities, they join with the people moving in to the territory and uh, in some cases assimilate into the, uh, into the groups moving into their territory in some cases, they there's enough of them that there's more of a cultural mix happening, and then there's a new cultural group that uh, that comes out of that. That's the ethnogenesis process that he uh, that he's mentions a, a couple times now. Uh, you know, it's, there's particularly high mortality among the Cree due to their direct dealings with traders as middlemen. The Cree are still acting as middlemen in the trade and since they're dealing directly with the traders with the europeans the canadians coming out they're bringing the smallpox out the Cree are the first ones to encounter them they pick up the pathogen they bring it back to their communities their communities get wiped out more that's the 
that's the Cree. Um, taking advantage of the newly unoccupied land and driven by the trader's need to replace labor lost due to death from smallpox. This is a labor shortage caused by a disease epidemic. Could the current labor shortage be caused by something similar? Uh, groups such as the Anishinaabe, Ottawa, and Iroquois from around the Great Lakes, uh, they start moving west. Uh, they're taking advantage of the labor shortage by the decimation of groups like like the Cree. And the Canadian traders and the Hudson's Bay Company, they need to replace that labor. So they're encouraging this migration. You can think of it as... As migrant workers, these are immigrants. They're they're not migrant workers so much as in their coming up to the fur trading territory, doing their jobs, and then going back to their communities. They're settling here, essentially. They're settling here to participate in the fur trade. The Anishinaabe and Iroquois were brought in by Canadian traders as replacement labor. These are also not like enterprising entrepreneurs like the Canadian traders, these are more, they're more labor. These are more laboring families. I'd say workers. Why not? Uh, but they're doing more of the menial jobs of, of the fur trade. That is the actual procurement of furs directly from the land or as muscle to enforce the interests of the white traders. The book notes that other indigenous groups were intimidated of the Anishinaabe when they came in, specifically because of this role in the trade and uh, their powerful uh, religion. And they notes they have they uh, were known for uh, having a rascally nature. I forget exactly what uh, what word is used in the book, something like rascally. And hello to any of my uh, Anishinaabe friends who may be listening. Not trying to put down your people. It's just what's in the book. Maybe there's a, a more nuanced way to, uh, to describe the process. And I certainly don't begrudge uh, any individuals moving somewhere for work, that's for sure. This naturally creates a lot of tension and conflict with the already existing indigenous groups living in these fur trading regions and doing these jobs traditionally, the newcomers are kind of are muscling them out. So they don't like this. That creates conflict. So there's violence uh, happening around, around this movement of people. Like I said, new group identities are formed as survivors from communities ravaged by smallpox and violence, merged with the newcomers from the East. A number of new ethnic identities emerge in a relatively short period of time, including the Plains Cree, the Soto, and the Plains Métis. That includes the Red River Métis that we uh, have where I live in Winnipeg. There are Métis communities being formed all over the prairies uh, at this time. Lots of different people groups all sort of all mixing around with, the, with each other. A bit about the ethnogenesis process that we're talking about here this creation of like new cultural identities um we could think of this as like the this was a process that's still happening by the way like especially if you uh, live in canada we're canada's always trying to develop some sort of cohesive national identity that brings 
all the different uh, ethnicities together. There's we've, we're a country of settlers um, and indigenous people, and Canada always wants to wants to build an umbrella, a national identity over that to bring all these different types of groups together to keep them working for uh, the betterment or the interest of Canada as the uh, Canadian state defines it. So this that's an intentional process of creation, creating an, a national identity. Uh, a national identity doesn't have to be deliberately manufactured. It can arise organically uh, as well. Um, which is more of what uh, this the process of ethnogenesis in the book uh, is talking about. But if you think about like what are the national symbols of Canada, like the the maple leaf, the beaver, and things like that, like these are specifically chosen uh, symbols. Uh, there's people who have meetings and they pitch them and things like that. We didn't get our flag in Canada till the '60s, like for instance, this. Uh, the CBC, uh, the state broadcaster, it's specifically uh, it's specifically there to create and reinforce uh, pan-Canadian like national identity. Think of other countries, the national identities of the United States, Great Britain, France. In Great Britain, how did the English, Welsh, and Scottish people all become uh, British? That's a creation of of a of a national identity uh our national founding myths um, um britain and the united states france they all have very rich and deep and very some people hold their their founding myths extremely tightly uh britain had an empire the united states and france both had revolutionary wars uh the civil war in the united states these are all part of um, the national, the national myths and narratives, and it's st and all these things are being created uh, as time goes on. Even even now, like here in Canada, yeah. Why do we have why is why do we have hockey? Why, why do we have hockey night in Canada on on the CBC? Like, why is hockey the national sport? That's part of creating a national identity, and uh, like a lot of the a lot of the diversity initiatives um are designed to incorporate different ethnic groups into that canadian uh national identity uh the tim hortons chain of coffee and donut restaurants specifically plays upon this idea of a canadian national identity they're saying hey we're canada's a national uh donut and, and coffee chain uh why there's nothing canadian or, or national uh about it really they have a founding myth as as well it's just another like gigantic company selling coffee and bad donuts R really terrible food i really can't i don't know why anyone goes to tim hortons honestly i'll go if i have a, have a gift card maybe um tim hortons isn't even owned by canadians i think burger king owns them uh, the National Film Board of Canada was created to produce films cana promoting a Canadian national identity. Soviet authorities, they consulted with the National Film Board to help them develop their own media promoting a Soviet na national identity. Um, that is not to say there's 
uh, that like publicly owned nationalized uh, broadcasters are bad. I don't think so, but that's one of the that's how we got ours anyway. I think we should have more public publicly owned and administrated uh, media dismantling things like the CBC, I don't think uh, are very helpful. We'll only get more like uh, whatever. We get more like uh, Netflix's and Amazon's. Facebook, Facebook should be a publicly owned and democratically administered company. It's basically a public utility at this point. And for me, if like me, you're listening to this, you are a member of my family or whatever, or my specific people, ethnic group. We are called the Mennonites. We are ethnically German. We're ethnically German, but practicing a distinct form of uh, Anabaptist Christianity. Some of us, anyway, um, those who haven't given up religion altogether or converted to some sort of uh, American-style fundamentalist evangelical psychosis. Uh, what's the... What's the difference between like a religious Mennonite and an ethnic Mennonite? Uh, Mennonites have a distinct culture that is influenced by their belonging to a specific uh, religious sect, but they've also existed for roughly 500 years, and there's like a, a Mennonite uh, ethnic story or mythology revolving around uh, pacifism. Uh, abstention from military service, uh, persecution from state or local authorities due to their pacifism, and then uh, moving from place to place, region to region in Europe, from the Low Countries and Prussia to uh, the Russian Empire, Ukraine, and then eventually... Uh, coming and settling in the new world here in Canada, place in the United States, South America, that sort of thing. That's uh, that's a process of ethnogenesis. Okay, moving on to climate. Uh, some of the coldest weather during the Little Ice Age. Remember that's still happening. Uh, that came in the 1790s. And that was combined with the longest and most severe drought in 500 years. Not good for people on the plains. Um, because of this, the horse herds became unsustainable. Uh, many com communities lost their horses. They, they, uh, they couldn't survive the cold and the drought. Uh, Intertribal violence rose as those without horses turned to raiding horses from those who still had them. Uh, so some tribes were still able to maintain more horses than the others. Again, those without horses, they needed them for, uh, for the bison hunt and transportation, participate in the fur trade economy, etc., etc. You can't not have horses. You got to get them somehow. So, uh, horse raiding becomes a big problem. Uh, lots of violence. This is all part of the whole, like, uh, I don't know, perfect storm of bad conditions. 
uh, again manifesting for uh, the people living in this area. Uh, we have a discussion of the serious social pathologies that is like the outward manifestations of many individuals now suffering from mental illnesses. There's alcoholism, there's violence. Uh, these things took hold of whole communities due to this multi-generational suffering by this point. Fur trade exploitation, drought, uh, mass horse die-offs, the raiding. Uh, uh, this is a complete societal collapse in some communities due to lack of horses and game depletion elsewhere. Um, then obviously we're going to get famine, uh, mass disruption of traditional seasonal economic cycle. Uh, there aren't enough animals to hunt for food. Uh, there's disruption of the traditional seasonal economic cycle due to the fur trade. Um, extermination of fur-bearing animals of all sorts changed the ecology of entire regions forever. The disruption of the traditional seasonal economic cycle. So communities can sustain themselves without relying on the fur trade, relying on the traditional ways that their ancestors were surviving on the plains for generations and generations. Uh, the the cultivating of plants in garden areas, the um, subsistence uh, harvesting of bison, uh, those things that we were talking about earlier in the, in the series, this is completely disrupted. Everyone's relying on the fur, on the European fur trade now. That that is collapsing. The, the, that, it's a very weak, rickety system. It doesn't have redundancies uh, built into it like... Uh, like the traditional uh, economic systems did. So societies are completely vulnerable to, to famine now. And the ecology is different. It's physically different. There are less fur-bearing animals for the trade and for food. It's an ecological collapse caused by... The caused by overhunting, caused by like the voracious pursuit of uh, of profit in the in the fur trade, leading to the collapse of the ecosystem and then the collapse of the communities dependent on the ecosystem. Can't be more blatant than that. There were plans for indigenous armed resistance to the exploitation of the fur traders, like we mentioned earlier. But the mounting perfect storm of disease, climate, social ills ensured that that was not going to happen. They didn't have it, the resources to do it. They couldn't organize and they didn't have the numbers. It's not that they didn't want to fight back. And there was a lot of uh, individuals, like violent acts. There were murders. There were killings. There were skirmishes and and massacres and, uh, and all that. Uh, but the full-out like armed indigenous resistance to this like to this like mass exploitation uh their assertion of like trying to reestablish their sovereignty at that point uh they their communities were too weakened to carry it out um at this time also the hudson's bay company and the newly formed uh, northwest company uh are in serious conflict 
uh, with each other. They're in conflict over the fur trading regions. The Hudson's Bay has a charter over the Hudson's Bay drainage basin, massive area. The Northwest Company is coming out from the east, and they're in, they're encroaching on that on what Hudson's Bay believes that they're sovereign territory. They have a monopoly rights over that territory. Northwest Company couldn't really be bothered about respecting that. Uh, they're going in. They're trading. They're building. The, they're building their posts uh, closer to indigenous communities. We've talked about all this before. That's that conflict is really leading to a head. There are battles and skirmishes and, and massacres relating to that. Um, probably the one that we're most familiar with here in Winnipeg. Uh, that happened at this time was the Battle of the Seven Oaks. And uh, in the book, he ties the uh, the Battle of Seven Oaks into the ecological uh, collapse that's happening, uh, that that is heightening the conflict between uh, the Northwest Company men and the HBC men, eventually leading to, uh, to the Seven Oaks conflict. The Battle of Seven Oaks was the climax of this fur trade wars period um the battle of seven oaks it took place here in the red river settlement the red river colony uh whatever you want to call it the selkirk settlement um and that was the agricultural colony that the hbc set up with lord selkirk uh basically a resettlement program for the uh people in scotland displaced by the highland clearances the highlands are being enclosed and cleared uh, to make way for like large scale, more like industrial style uh, farming, sheep farming, and whatnot. Uh, they gotta move the peasants off the land. They go to the cities. Lord Selkirk believes this is a better option for them. You can ship them off to uh, the Red River settlement here. Uh, land uh, given with land donated by the HBC, they produce they can produce pemmican for the HBC and sort of establish HBC's uh, the HBC's claim over that land against the Northwest Company. The Northwest Company um, obviously isn't going to uh, respect that claim. Um, most of the Northwest Company people here now are um, Métis or from other indigenous groups. So they're going to see this as an encroachment on uh, their sovereignty, um, obviously. So the Battle of Seven Oaks is over uh, a pemmican shipment. A guy named Cuthbert Grant and a number of, I think, around 60 uh, other Métis and indigenous Northwest Company men they intercept an HPC pemmican shipment going out. Uh, the Métis wanted to stay with them. Pemmican's in short supply. Um, the weather's bad. The economy's bad. The environment's bad. There's a food shortage going on. Uh, they need that pemmican. Uh, tensions are also heightened by the um, Red River Colony governor at that time, Robert Semple. He he uh he was an american businessman with like no prior experience in the fur trade um he didn't really know the situation or the context he didn't have any ties to the land 
or anything like that. So having him here as the governor didn't really help at all. So a group of uh, Northwest Company men, uh, mostly Métis and Indigenous, they intercept an HBC pemmican shipment on the Red River that the HBC is shipping out to HBC men. The uh, Northwest Company men want to keep it locally. Uh, there is a food shortage, so they want that pemmican to stay uh, local to their community. Um the HBC wants to ship it out. So about Cuthbert Grant takes about 60 men uh, up to Seven Oaks, a place on the Red River. The Métis uh, called it Frog Plain. And they intercept uh, Robert Semple and uh, about 28 uh, HBC men. Uh, the HBC men take uh, take exception to the, uh, to the appropriation of that pemmican fight breaks out 21 of 28 uh, hbc men are killed or wounded i'm uh one uh there's one loss on the uh, metis side and uh so the metis men uh make off of the pemmican that's the battle of seven oaks that's what brings the fur trade wars the pemmican wars to uh to the attention of the of the British government and ultimately causes them to decide that they need to get a handle on this because things are spiraling way out of control. Uh, this type of violence was getting uh, was getting so out of hand. It was uh, it was cutting it was cutting into the profits of the HBC. Which, if you're the British government. If you're the empire of Great Britain, you can't really have that. You need that money to sustain your empire. This is one of the major going concerns of the empire. It's one of the reasons that you even have an empire is the fur trade right now. Due to the like the cutthroat and violent and ruthless competition between the Canadian and HBC traders, uh, the beaver, all fur-bearing animals are just being decimated they're being hunted to uh to extinction uh the indigenous communities that that they rely on to do the dirty work like the actual workers the actual laborers on the bottom rung of this fur trade their societies are are collapsing due to this environmental collapse which is also caused uh by unstable weather this is the little ice age remember there was a volcanic eruption the weather was bad uh the horses that they rely on are dying off there's intertribal raiding um the pathologies of like of alcohol and violence pervading the communities directly due to the uh the exploitation of the fur trade um and this is this is cutting into the bottom line of the hbc and uh and the british government uh, can't let that happen. They're administering the Canadian colonies. Canada is still a colony of, of Great Britain. So uh, the government, the British government, forces the merger of, uh, of the two companies. Uh, the Northwest Company is absorbed into the Hudson's Bay Company, and then the Hudson's Bay Company reestablishes its monopoly uh, over the fur trade in Canada. I'm 
just going to read a short section from a different book uh, called Prison of Grass by Howard Adams. Uh, Howard Adams uh, was a Métis man from Saskatchewan. Uh, He was a university professor, historian, a writer, uh, activist. And this book, Prison of Grass, the subtitle is Canada from a Native Point of View. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll use this a little bit going forward as uh, as a companion to just to bring in uh, indigenous perspective on some of the events that are that are covered here. I should say that I haven't read all of Prison of Grass yet, just like I haven't read all of the all of Clearing the Plains yet. I am talking about it as I'm reading it, uh, so I don't know <laughs> what the end of the story is. Uh, I mean, I guess I do. <laughs> from other sources but uh it's kind of interesting going talking about it as i'm going rather than reading it all the way through and then talking about it i'm sure what i would say would be would be colored differently if i had read both these books all the way through but uh i like how it gives like a little bit of a there's a little bit of a mystery or surprise you never really know what uh, exactly what you're going to find or exactly what you're going to get but I can say so far that Prison of Grass is excellent. I'd recommend it so far. Um, and chapter three in Prison of Grass deals specifically with the fur trade and this era of the fur trade. And he describes more in depth what the process of trading was like from an indigenous perspective, uh, the methods used during the actual trading process. The nature of competition, um, how the ecology was affected, the community was affected, their tr- traditional ways of life were were affected. Um, it's it's really excellent, and I and if you're reading Clearing the Plains, I would also recommend reading uh, Prison of Grass. I'm just going to read a couple of sections straight from the book to encourage the Indians. Again, this was written in 1975 uh the language is of the period i'm reading directly uh from the book to encourage the indians to trap furs the europeans had to offer trade goods that would appeal to them initially some traders were successful in dealing away trinkets such as beads and mirrors To the European, these were cheap goods with little market value, but the Indian desired them because he found them exotic and beautiful. Since he had no concept of property value, he did not assess the trinket in terms of its market value. However, the Indians prized the white man's manufactured goods much more because they were of great practical use. Unfortunately, the Europeans quickly discovered the power alcohol had over the Indians. Initially used as an inducement to bring Indians to the forts, alcohol soon became a major trade item. Because the white traders were anxious to create a solid market for their manufactured goods, and most of the trade in furs involved the exchange of axes, iron cooking utensils, clothing, and of course firearms. These new implements did not change the basic structure of the Indian economy, but simply made it more efficient and productive. For example, the traditional method of cooking was to heat stones and place them inside bark pots, which could not withstand direct heat, 
Thus, the iron kettle was a big improvement because it allowed Indians to choose cooking sites without regard to the availability of stones. However, the destructive function of the natives' use of European goods was that it created a dependence upon white traders. This, in turn, created a dependence upon the beaver because its fur was necessary to obtain the European goods. So that describes pretty well like the process of how uh, indigenous communities shifted from a traditional way of life to a way of life completely dependent on the fur trade. And this process didn't just happen with indigenous people in, in North America. It happened with indigenous people all over the world, like including the uh, peasantry of Europe. You can have contact with different societies, civilizations, ethnic groups, and not have it be destructive, and not have it be destructive to one or both of those groups. If the exchange and trade is not exploitative, if it's equal and consensual, and doesn't uh, and and doesn't impose itself unnecessarily over the other. That exchange of goods and technology uh, can be mutually beneficial, but this process illustrated in the fur trade, this trading practice, this pursuit of profit for all costs, this, Im- this imperial global capitalist uh, economic system, the one that built our world and the world that we're, the same world that we're living in now, um, this process and the mindset that it conditions its participants into, uh, it doesn't respect the sovereignty of any ordinary person. Uh, no indigenous person, no settler, no ordinary worker, no one who depends on them, no woman, and no vulnerable person. It only exists to extract value from you and from the natural world simply to increase profit at any cost even if it means the destruction of the ordinary people uh, the system relies on for labor and the natural world that it relies on for materials it is a stupid simple algorithm for death and misery, and an algorithm for unlimited uh, comfort and wealth for an extremely small minority, and convenience. And that is perfectly exemplified by the fur trade, where the entire reason that all of this this hurricane of shit is happening to people and the natural world is to have fancy hats. I'm not making this up. Uh, They already, and the only reason they're in North America to begin with, to get the furs for the hats, is because they killed all the beaver uh, in Europe, in Great Britain, when they were, where they were living already that's it's crazy further on this is uh page 24 and 25 actually i think the 1989 edition uh if you happen to be reading this uh 
top of page 25, many of these methods worked, and a greater breakdown of the traditional economy resulted, since the women now had to abandon farming or other occupations in order to trap. The Europeans were unprincipled traders, and the Indians would lose heavily if they were not cautious. Regular attempts were made by Indian councils to counteract harmful trading practices and to transact business properly. They complained that iron utensils were faulty, bottoms fell out of kettles as soon as water was poured in them. Many European goods disintegrated after a very short time. Food products were often spoiled, resulting in disease. Guns would burst in the men's faces, injuring or killing them. And European clothes often caused smallpox and pulmonary ailments, as well as skin diseases. And on page 26, we have more of discussion on the role of alcohol and the use of alcohol by the uh, white traders in their dealings with the indigenous people. Um, As far as I'm aware, uh, indigenous people did have a type of alcohol like a corn or grain uh, drink, beverage, that had a small alcohol content in it, like a small beer or ale that would have been uh, popular in, in Britain at that time. I don't know if people on the plains had access to that um, prior to the European arrival or not. Um, I don't know how, um, I don't know if that was a trade item or if they were making it here or not, uh, regardless. Um, but as far as I'm aware, they did not have a distilled alcohol spirit like uh, like a whiskey, like a corn grain spirit, uh, like a highly distilled uh, alcoholic uh, liquid. And and they certainly didn't have like a cultural uh, cultural practices or institutions that could regulate the use of this. Uh, highly distilled alcohol. Uh, so their their communities were were especially vulnerable to uh, to alcoholism, and with the deteriorating uh, environmental and economic conditions, it's no surprise that uh, turning to alcohol uh, would have been one of the main ways they would try to cope. We all still do that now, by the way. At the bottom of page 26, there were other serious problems. Councils were particularly troubled over the degrading conditions resulting from the use of alcohol. This was a major issue at all tribal meetings. Natives throughout the land were worried about the demoralizing effects of the alcohol that was being freely supplied by white traders. There seemed to be an endless supply of this firewater. In one year alone, the Hudson's Bay Company imported nearly 5,000 gallons of rum to be used in trade with all Indian trappers. H.J. Moberly, a Hudson's Bay factor, who wrote about his experiences, stated, Carlton House had a number of Plains Crees who could buy all the rum they were able to pay for. Our goods, of course, consisted principally of rum, plentifully diluted, We selected our guard, and the trade began. Liquor was also commonly used as a, quote, treat, during which the trader would give the Indians free drink to get them intoxicated so that they could cheat them out of their furs. 
But whether alcohol was used as a trade item or as a treat, the results were the same. Indians were no worse drunkards than white men. The traders were simply nurturing and exploiting a normal human weakness for the sake of amassing a greater fortune. Then another quote from the time, Our Indians are not of themselves addicted to drink, but they are supplied with liquor. Whiskey has destroyed a greater number of Indians than either war or disease. No barter took place between the trader and the Indian without the first offering the other whiskey. The trader, who looks at his own interest, is pitiless and laughs at the misery and degradation of the Indian. And that quote is from the report upon the present state of the great Manitoulin Island, etc., from the Journals of the Legislative Assembly of the Province of Canada, 1858. So I'd, I'd like to know if that type of trade is actually free, and what the role of individual personal responsibility is in that sort of situation. Those are my questions. So we have a deliberate uh, plying of alcohol to the indigenous traders by the European traders, uh, getting them drunk and stealing their shit, basically. Um, the indigenous traders becoming addicted to alcohol. Again, there's no social regulation or constraint. Uh, they become extremely uh, vulnerable in every trade interaction. Due to all the factors we've been discussing in this episode, uh, the Northwest Company, the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, the British government, the Canadian government, the indigenous communities, Everyone was aware that this was happening. This was uh, par for the course. Also in the chapter is a sh short um, mention of the um, sale of indigenous women in, uh, I would only assume the word is a sex slave trafficking uh, sort of situation. It's the sale of human beings as if they were commodities. That is uh, slavery. And that was here. And uh, it's, uh, strangely or depressingly enough, it also echoes uh, the stories uh, of real practices that continue um, in resource extraction areas, uh, pipeline camps, uh, for instance, and urban areas, um, there still is a trade in the sexual exploitation of indigenous women in Canada, in Winnipeg. It's in some way, shape, or form, all the pathologies, all the terrible treatment of people by other people, um, all the destruction of the environment that were talking about here in this book in this chapter like in it's still happening in one way shape or form uh now this is part of the history of our country and our province our city our communities the world that we live in now uh, this is all how uh the 21st century happens this type of process um, I guess all, all the societal ills, 
all the big scary things, all the things that we don't really want to look at or contemplate or acknowledge that are happening now, uh, were happening then too. And the only way to uh, improve the situation, to improve the uh, the conduct of humans towards uh, their fellow humans and establish um, establish better systems, more humane systems uh, of living, more humane economic systems, political systems, social systems, or habits, whatever you, you want to call it. The way to make a better world is to um, look history in the face, look the present in the face, and ask yourself, what am I doing here? What are the people around me doing? Um, what is the work that I need to do? What is socially meaningful work? And uh, yeah, just uh, decide. Uh, decide for yourself how you want to go about in the world. I guess that's it. Um, yeah, we'll leave off there for now. And, uh, for my next episode, maybe I'll do, like, take a break of going through chap chapter by chapter and do some more, like, tying up of loose ends on, on some of these uh, previous chapters. We're at the halfway point of the book now. Um, and, uh, the history of the Northwest Company is very interesting. could talk about that. Um, maybe some other things that I've wanted to circle back to, but haven't had a chance yet. Uh, but, uh, yeah, who knows? Anyway, thank you for listening and may you be well as always and, uh, take care of yourselves and everyone around you. We will talk to you later. Bye-bye.